This is On the Record, a guide to English law from the team at Glazier Solicitors. Hello and welcome to On the Record, a guide to English law, the podcast hosted by Glazier Solicitors. Today is the fifth episode of our probate miniseries and I'm really happy to have Chris back with us to talk through a quite a difficult subject. Chris Burrows is our head of private client. He works very closely with Emma and Charlotte, who did the first four episodes of our probate mini series. Chris has been on the podcast before, episode three and episode seven, talking about business owners and planning for the future. We have previously looked at the initial legal steps that you have to take, inheritance tax, applying for the grant of probate, and what happens after you get the grant of probate. And today we're going to be talking about trusts. So I think the best first question, Chris, is what is a trust and why might one be included in a will? Thanks, Bethany. Well, a trust is really an arrangement where people are appointed in a will as trustees to manage assets on behalf of beneficiaries of the estate. This could be a fairly short term arrangement, for example, holding money until a child reaches a certain age. Or it could be a longer term arrangement to protect assets for the benefit of children and future generations of a family. So previously we've talked about what happens if someone dies without a will and that is called a person dying intestate. Just to remind our listeners, if someone dies intestate, can there still be a trust? Trusts can be created if someone dies without a will, but generally only if the beneficiary is under 18 when the person dies. The administrators of the estate would have to hold the assets on trust until the child becomes an adult. Most of the trusts we'll be looking at today are created under a will, and there'll probably have been some detailed planning done during lifetime to put them in place. So what are the main types of trusts that someone can use in their will? Today we'll have a look at three main types of trusts. So trusts for minor children, so when they're under 18, interest in possession trusts, which are also known as life interest trusts, and also discretionary trusts. There are other types of trusts or variations on these types which could be included in a will, such as gifts for charity or specific arrangements allowing someone to live in a property but not having any formal beneficial right to it. But today we'll stick to the main three categories of trusts for children, interest in possession trusts and discretionary trusts. The first trust that you mentioned was a trust for children. How does that work? In the previous episode of this series, Emma mentioned the different types of gifts that can be included in a will. And just to recap on that, that it can be gifts of specific amounts of money. So, for example, someone could say £1,000 to each of my grandchildren, or it could be a share of the residue of the estate. And broadly, the residue is what's left in the estate once the debts and expenses and any tax has been paid. A child could be a beneficiary under a specific amount of money, or they might be one of the residuary beneficiaries, meaning that they would get a part of the overall value of the estate. The will might set an age for that beneficiary to reach before they become entitled. It's quite common for this to be 21 or 25, but generally the beneficiary has to be over 18 before they can receive their legacy or their share of the estate from the executors and the executors won't be able to hand it over until they reach that age. If the age is older than 18, then the beneficiary might be entitled to receive income between the period of turning 18 and the age that they've been specified as being able to receive the assets, so whether that's 21 or 25. You're going to have to look at 
the specific will that you're dealing with to see exactly what conditions apply to the gift for that child. If money is held on trust for a child, does that mean that their parents or the people looking after them can't use it? Again, it's really going to depend on the terms of the will and the specific circumstances of that beneficiary. If it's a fairly modest amount of money being held for a grandchild, well, the chances are the family are going to want to keep that set aside and potentially build it up a little bit until the child's old enough to receive it. So in that case, it's probably unlikely that they dip into it in the meantime. But if it's a larger amount of money or a share of the residue of the estate, or for example, if the child's parent has died, then their share of the estate could be used for their education, their maintenance, or more generally for their, their benefit. So this could mean using some of the fund to meet education costs, university tuition fees, but even just general living expenses, clothing, that kind of thing. So money can be used from the child's entitlement before they reach the age that it's been specified when they would take control of those assets themselves. In the list of trusts that you mentioned that we're going to be talking about today, the second was the interest in possession. What is an interest in possession trust? So an interest in possession trust is an arrangement where the beneficiary is entitled to either use an asset or to receive any income generated from it. These are often also referred to as life interest trusts, so it's quite common for people to either say life interest or interest in possession, and very often they'll be meaning exactly the same thing. The reason it's called a life interest trust is that quite often the beneficiary will have that entitlement to income for the rest of their life, and although there can be triggers for it to come to an end while they're still alive, or they might choose to give up the rights to receive income, it tends to be quite a long-running arrangement. These can be really useful because the person that's entitled to the life interest, for example the surviving spouse, doesn't own the assets in the trust outright, so it's protecting the value against them losing it or spending it or passing it on to people that the person who originally owned it wouldn't necessarily want it to go to. So the children and future generations of the family would receive the assets when the trust comes to an end and potentially the trustees could take assets out during the surviving spouse's lifetime, depending on the way the will's been written. It might be easier if I give you an example as to how a life interest trust works, because these can be a bit of an abstract concept. So let's take an example of a married couple with children, and they're concerned that after the first person's death, the survivor might go on to form a new relationship or remarry. And if they've inherited everything on the first person's death, there's a risk that that might then fall into the marital assets for the new relationship or could pass to subsequent children or stepchildren, for example. They don't necessarily want to stop the surviving spouse from receiving benefits from that trust, but they want to make sure that there's some protection so that ultimately it will be passed on to the children that they've got together. And if we use the family home for this example, we'd need to make sure that They've changed the ownership of the house so that they're what's known as tenants in common, meaning that they've got separate legal interests in the property and it won't automatically pass to the survivor on the first person's death. But then in the will, they've created a trust so that the surviving person's entitled to any income generated from the deceased's half of the house, or instead of receiving income, they can carry on living there. And that means on the first person's death, the trustees become owners of the deceased's half of the house and they hold it on trust to let the survivor live there. But ultimately, in the longer term, they'll pass the capital value onto the children in the future. So from the example that you've just given about the house, 
Who are the owners of the house? The surviving spouse would continue to own their own half. Nothing changes from their point of view. That's their half of the house. There's, there's no effect on it because their spouse has died. It's only the half that belongs to the person who died that goes into the trust. And the executors named in the will would be the trustees. This could include the surviving spouse. It could be the children if they're adults. It could be friends, relatives or professional advisors. The trustees would need to be added to the land registry records as legal co-owners of the property, along with the surviving spouse, and the land registry records would specify how much belongs to the trust and how much belongs to the surviving spouse themselves. So does this mean that the spouse can't move or can't have money from the trust? No, the trust should be set up so that it's flexible enough to change with the surviving person's needs. As ever, it's important to look at the specific terms of the will, but generally these arrangements should be set up with enough flexibility that the property can be sold and the money could then be reinvested in a replacement property. That can be really handy if the survivor wants to downsize in the future or in later life. And depending on the value of the replacement property, if the house that's being sold is worth more than the replacement, the survivor could agree with the trustees that the trust actually puts in more value to the replacement property, meaning that the surviving person's freeing up some of their own cash, which they're then able to spend in retirement or pass on to children or use against their care fees and that kind of thing. It might also be possible for the trustees to give trust assets or effectively take capital out of the trust to the surviving spouse. So if they had exhausted all of their own assets and the trust was sitting on cash or invested funds from the sale of a property and the survivor's effectively running out of money, the trustees might, if they've got the flexibility under the will, decide to give some of that over to the surviving spouse effectively to top them up. But the point is, that's the trustee's choice to be able to do that rather than it being an automatic entitlement and automatically exposing that, that value to being lost out of the family. The example that you just used was talking about property. What if the trust holds money instead? Is it different? The trustees would have to use any money that they hold to generate income for the income beneficiary. So it is a bit different if they're holding cash. They'd have to decide how to invest that or whether to keep it in the bank. And any income that does come from it has to be paid over. So they need to look at the income needs of the beneficiary. But also, if they're investing, they need to take investment advice to make sure that they're using the right kind of products and the right level of risk appropriate for trustee investments. You also mentioned a discretionary trust in the list at the beginning of the podcast. How is that different from an interest in possession? The difference with a discretionary trust is that we don't have anyone automatically entitled to income or capital when we've got a discretionary trust. Instead, the trust has a list of potential beneficiaries and it's up to the trustees to decide who receives income and capital and when they receive it. So the beneficiaries aren't able to demand money is paid to them or that the trust assets are used in a specific way. The real difference is that there's a change in control, that the trustees are the ones who decide who gets what and when, but the beneficiaries are in quite a weak position under a discretionary trust. And that's deliberate because it means that the trustees have more flexibility but it also puts families perhaps in a less certain position than they would be under an interest in possession trust. Trustees will generally have what's known as a power of appointment, which is their legal ability to take assets out of the fund and pass it on to beneficiaries. And 
discretionary trusts can be really useful, particularly where we don't know what the personal position of the beneficiaries is going to look like following a person's death. And potentially, if there are multiple generations of the family, the children might be doing quite well when their parents die, and we might want to generation skip and instead use the discretionary trust to provide for grandchildren. Or there might be different branches of the family in different financial positions, and the discretionary trust can give us flexibility to manage the family's assets for the different branches. So in the second podcast of the mini-series, Emma talked about inheritance tax. Can a discretionary trust help with inheritance tax planning? Discretionary trusts used to be really common for inheritance tax planning, particularly before tax rules were changed in 2006. And I know that sounds like going back quite a long time these days, but there'll be a lot of clients who still have nil rate banned discretionary trusts in their older wills, which were intended to use the tax allowance on the first person's death. When the rules changed in 2006, that meant that we can transfer inheritance tax allowance between spouses without having to use a trust structure. So if you do still have older wills with that type of trust planning, you might be able to simplify the terms of the will or instead perhaps look at using an interest in possession trust, which will still give protection over the assets, but we can rely on the law to give us the flexibility for inheritance tax planning without having to use a discretionary trust just to make sure we achieve that that saving. Even though the changes in 2006 simplified the inheritance tax position, making it easier to transfer these allowances, there can still be advantages to using a discretionary trust today, particularly if the estate contains an interest in a business which qualifies for tax relief. Effectively, that could mean that the business interests are exempt from inheritance tax. Now, if we give those to a surviving spouse, we won't be making use of the business tax relief because we'd get spouse exemption instead. So some families decide that they'd like the business assets to go into a trust for the benefit of the wider family, meaning that they go in tax-free and the surviving spouse could be one of the beneficiaries, but equally we could have set up a nice pot of tax-free assets on the first person's death, which can then be used to pass on to the family more effectively. We've talked about putting assets into trust. How do you get money out of the trust to the beneficiaries? Again, that's going to depend on the type of trust we're using. So as I've mentioned, if we've got an interest in possession trust, the beneficiary is entitled to income. So the trustees need to make sure that there's a practical way of getting that income out to them. If it's an invested fund, then most often they'd be able to just tell the fund provider to pay the income direct to the beneficiary. If it's rental income, then again, the letting agent perhaps could pay direct or it could filter via the trust. It's a matter of working out the practicalities against the assets that the trust's actually holding. If you've got a discretionary trust or under an interest in possession, if you want to take capital out of the trust, then most often you're going to have to use a deed to do this. And that's really a formal document signed by the trustees to make their decision legally effective. And once that's in place, they can then transfer the ownership of the assets over to the beneficiary that they've decided to appoint it to. As I keep saying, it's really important for the trustees to check the trust that they are actually appointed under, because there can be conditions on what they're allowed to do, or sometimes a beneficiary might need to consent to the appointment. So it's really important to make sure that you understand as a trustee exactly what powers you have, because you can't just rely on an assumed position because you might end up appointing things to the wrong person or doing it in an incorrect way. 
trusts often have an ultimate beneficiary or a default beneficiary so that we know when the trust comes to an end who the assets should be given to. This could kick in when a certain event occurs. So, for example, when the surviving spouse dies under an interest in possession, that might be an automatic trigger for the assets to pass over to the children. Potentially, trusts can run for up to 125 years, so we could have a very long period before a discretionary trust comes to an end, for example. In those cases, we might want to name a charity as the ultimate beneficiary, because chances are they're still going to be around long after the immediate family have probably passed away during that 125-year period. I would say as well that it's far more common for the trust to be wound up during that time by using the powers of appointment and giving the assets over to the beneficiaries rather than letting it run to the absolute end of the trust period. You mentioned that trust can go on for 125 years. Over that time, can trustees change? In a will trust, the initial trustees are going to be the executors most of the time, although it is possible to include additional trustees as well. Yes, the trustees are likely to need to change over time, either as they become older or they want to step back from being trustees. Perhaps they just don't want to do it anymore. And in those circumstances, the trustees can change. Again, it's done by deed, so the people who want to retire from the trust can come off and be replaced by other people. Or, if there are enough trustees, they can allow the other trustees to just carry on and one person could exit from being trustee. Families sometimes build in provisions in the will to say that the surviving spouse gets to appoint who the trustees are while they're still alive, and there might be other conditions or other practical considerations as to who the best choice of trustees are. But really, it's for the family or the existing trustees to think about the practicalities and work out who's best to run the trust for the future generations of the family. While the trust is running, are there any tax issues that trustees would need to deal with? Trustees will face tax issues while they're acting as trustees, and it's going to depend on the type of, of trust that's being used. And this can be a really complicated topic. We could do a podcast on or on its own just for this. Generally, where there's an interest in possession under a will trust, there aren't any ongoing inheritance tax issues for the trustees to deal with. Instead, when the person with the right to receive income dies, their estate is taxed as if it owned the capital value of the trust fund, even though that's actually owned by the trustees. This is different from the way the interest in possession trusts are taxed if they're created in lifetime. So often an interest in possession under a will is a more inheritance tax efficient route than a lifetime interest in possession trust. Discretionary trusts are taxed a bit more frequently and they're looked at for inheritance tax assessments every 10 years and also whenever capital is taken out of the trusts. Trusts do have their own inheritance tax allowances and can qualify for exemptions so it's important that the trustees take specialist advice probably from an accountant and understand exactly what they need to pay and when. There can also be income tax and capital gains tax issues for the trustees to navigate, so they need to be really careful that they understand exactly what they need to report, when they need to report it, and importantly, if there's any tax to pay, that they make sure that that's paid out of the trust fund. So we've talked about trusts, we've talked about tax. If people are considering trusts when it comes to their wills and planning for the future, is there one single sort of final piece of advice that you would give them? 
I'd actually give them two final pieces of advice. So the first one is don't be scared of trusts. Loads of people are put off by trusts or they they think they're going to be overly complicated. They don't have to be. If it's planned correctly, it can be a really flexible tool for managing families, money, giving loads of protection to stop assets going to people that they wouldn't necessarily want it to or to to ring-fence it really for the family. Because this is part of the probate mini-series, I think we need to think about it from the point of view of if you are an executor and a trustee and you're looking at this will thinking, what on earth is this trust? What do I do? It's really a case of making sure you understand what your duties are, who the beneficiaries are, and the options that you've got as trustee for passing the income or the assets onto the beneficiaries. And if you're clear from the outset and you understand exactly what you're allowed to do, that means that you can then get the assets in the right ownership structure, you can invest them appropriately if that's necessary, you can make sure the right land registry records are in place, and that will make the ongoing administration of the trust a lot easier because you've started from the correct starting point. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing all of your experience with us, Chris. Thank you for your time. And we'll speak to you again for the sixth episode next month. Thanks, Bethany. Look forward to speaking to you next time.